Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. In this episode, I'll be talking about something called partable paternity. In short, partable paternity is the idea that more than one man can contribute biologically to the production of a single offspring by having sexual relations with the mother. This is a family structure that's been recorded in other areas, but I'm going to focus on societies in lowland South America for which there is much research. The knowledge of sexual reproduction is so common in our culture that we rarely take time to consider that this information is culturally imparted to us and not intuitively understood by human beings. So when we come across other cultures with competing ideas about human reproduction, it can be surprising because we're so used to this knowledge in our own society. But some cultures have intuitively come to other conclusions about human reproduction, and this shapes the way they view family, paternity, and interpersonal relationships. In looking for signs of mild xenophobia, one example would be trying to reverse engineer our own models of family based on facts about human sexual reproduction. That is, because our society behaves a particular way, there must be a foundation in biological evolution that drives our model. And while this is not entirely false, it's too often presented as justification for behaviors that are not biological imperatives, but rather cultural choices. When we realize that another society has rejected our model of reproduction and paternity, it gives us a clue that our own models are choices, not requirements. And while we may have insight into our own model being scientifically more accurate, it does not retroactively justify the behaviors we choose to model as a result of that information. In other words, all societies eat food. But not all societies eat the same things or observe the same customs regarding how or when or even with whom they eat. Having scientific information about human digestion may provide us with insights into why human societies eat food and why they like certain high-level tastes or why they avoid some foods as poisonous, but it does not, for example, explain food taboos. Growing up Christian, I was taught that God's dietary laws in the Old Testament were provided for the health and welfare of the Jewish people. Pigs and shellfish could be dangerous to eat, and God wanted them to avoid parasites and poisoning. However, there have been and still are cultures that did not have modern ovens and cooking data, who routinely dined on pork and shellfish. Trying to explain from a biological standpoint why these foods should be avoided by societies that lack Western technology begins to fall apart as we begin to see how other cultures have successfully incorporated the very behaviors and food choices that we claim should not be culturally adopted due to biological imperatives. The truth is, I don't know why pigs and shellfish were off the table for ancient Jews. 
just as I can't explain why they adopted certain family models, just as I can't explain why eating bugs is considered gross in the U.S. and why we adhere to the nuclear family model rather than a more community-oriented model. I just know that societies do not deviate in some regards, like eating food. But they exhibit a great deal of flexibility and adaptive capacity in other regards, like what to eat and what constitutes a family. I'd like to read a passage from the paper The Concept of Partable Paternity Among Native South Americans by Stephen Beckerman and Paul Valentine. It reads as follows. It's a bit chastening to realize that conclusive scientific evidence for singular paternity, for what we can call the one-sperm-one-fertilization doctrine, is only a little over a century old. Gregor Mendel obtained experimental evidence around 1870 that a single pollen grain introduced into an ovule produced a well-developed seed. In 1879, Hermann Foll published evidence of experimentation and microscopic observation demonstrating that in animals, fertilization is always effective by a single spermatozoan. Before the end of the 19th century, although Western law and custom assumed that each child had a single biological father, that premise was simply a folk belief resting on other folk beliefs about how babies are made and what the mother and father contribute, beliefs that seem quaint to us now. Nevertheless, fanciful as these ideas may appear in detail, they had the effect of getting it right insofar as the big question. Biological paternity is singular. Fertilization is a unitary event, and copulations after the moment of conception do not contribute anything to the developing fetus. Each child does have only one biological father. This happy coincidence of folk doctrine and biological reality within our own intellectual tradition has not been without its unfortunate consequences. It has made it easy for us to presume that our folk beliefs concerning fertilization, conception, and fetal development must be everyone's folk beliefs, inevitable and universal. The presumption has channeled and perhaps constrained our thinking about both the biological and the social aspects of paternity. End quote. So I'll leave it there with Beckman and Valentine, and we'll get back to partible paternity. There are different variations on the model even among the societies in the same regional area. And in the paper Evolutionary History of Partible Paternity in Lowland South America, which I've included in references, they look at some key differences on a spectrum from societies in the same region that model only one father to societies in which nearly all of the children have multiple fathers. While there are some outliers, the authors address that in general, they found societies with a single father model tended to view extramarital affairs as immoral, exercise violence against offending women, and display discomfort about discussing sexuality in public settings. Alternately, societies that held to universal partible paternity actually had institutionalized extramarital sex, exhibited respect for rather than hostility toward the sexual agency and autonomy of women, and were comfortable joking about sex in public. The authors also made note that women in these settings still exercise discrimination in partner selection. That is, having more partners did not mean the women weren't still being selective with regard to the partners they chose. Some of the observed advantages of partible paternity compared to single-parent societies in the same region include that women can seek out more social support and paternal commitment with lower risk of abuse or infanticide. 
If one partner's interest wanes, they can solicit others who may be more interested and more involved. Men within the societies can use their shared associations as a form of bonding with one another. And men, as well, can sleep with multiple partners, potentially spreading their options for creating progeny. In studies that have examined the issue of infant mortality in the region, higher survival rates were demonstrated for infants who had the participation of multiple fathers. Marriage still exists, and a woman may have what we might term a primary partner who is also a primary father. In these societies, it is also generally the case that after marriage, husbands will live with their wife's kin, similar to what we saw in the Nayar with the India episode. Also in the future, I'll be discussing polyandrous societies and wife-sharing structures, which can sometimes also be paired with or compared to partable paternity. In this lowland region, we find diversity that echoes all of that, but we'll be looking at similar customs in other parts of the globe in later episodes for how multiple male partners can manifest in different ways. In fact, as emancipating as it may sound for a woman to be able to engage in sex with multiple partners, in some cases the situation is still predominantly male-controlled. Still, in the most universal models of partable paternity, Women are afforded levels of respect for agency and autonomy that can offer an ideological challenge to our Western traditions of women's roles and statuses. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Some authors have argued about the role of jealousy in these cultural frameworks. I honestly can't say whether jealousy is something that inherently impacts some percentage of the human species no matter where we are or whether it's a cultural concept simply encouraging social members to feel insecure about access to resources, including reducing sexual partners to non-agents and mere resources. I can say that some social frameworks certainly encourage it and foster it to dangerous and violent levels, give it credibility and validity. I talked previously about our own society excusing outright murder for infidelity until recently, and how we continue to view it as a reason to destroy relationships and families. Although it's not legal, many people actually still consider destruction of property to be justified in situations where an infidelity has occurred. There are songs praising this behavior in popular Western media. Our models of monogamy, paired with exclusivity, encouraging jealousy and angry and pained reactions, would not be likely to work well in a system of universal partable paternity. Our culture does not encourage authentic expressions of our sexual selves. In my own experience, with a subject sample of one, I was raised to believe jealousy was normal, and I expressed and experienced extreme jealous reactions in my youth. As I became older, I began to understand and respect the agency and autonomy of others, and to realize that our sexual inclinations are not generally immediately subject to our personal will in the same way flavors or smells we enjoy are not. I realized that when I was not sexually interested in someone else, it wasn't a judgment or denigration. In fact, I have had very beautiful friends, men and women, that I was not attracted to personally. Friends I would feel absolutely comfortable setting up other friends with, 
I like these people. I think they have a good aesthetic. I'm just not personally sexually interested for reasons I can't explain. A personal aesthetic, a visceral reaction. But the point is, there's no reason for someone to think I'm being malicious or that I dislike them simply because I don't find myself attracted to them. And realizing this about myself gave me the epiphany that if someone isn't sexually interested in me, it's not anything for me to feel ashamed or bad about. It's just a reality I need to accept and respect. So for me, jealousy was a construct, not an inherent state. Releasing it, once I understood it, was actually easy. Unlike anger, which I have to control in some cases when it arises, jealousy I no longer experience at all. That doesn't mean that my experience with it is universal. I can't say that my experience sheds any light on the experiences of individual members of a culture with partible paternity. I can only say that they may or may not experience jealousy as we understand it, and I can say via my understanding of how jealousy is expressed in the U.S., that if the members of these societies were very often prone to the types of jealousy we validate and normalize, partible paternity as a social strategy would not have lasted as long as it has. And this seems like a good time to share the following passage that provides an example of the mild xenophobia people should watch out for. Anyone who's taken more than a handful of cultural anthropology courses will recognize the example in the following passage as a problematic claim. But when people aren't exposed to the diversity of other cultures routinely, they adopt their cultural values as human values. It isn't because we aren't intelligent. It's just that we aren't fully informed about cultural diversity in general. We simply don't know any better. And generalizations that match our personal cultural experiences are accepted without question because they sound reasonable in our cultural context. We confuse our culture structures with human realities all the time, and we make sweeping assertions about humanity that are incorrect as a result. Following is the passage. Versions of the standard model, with its implicit reliance on the one-sperm-one-fertilization doctrine, are apparently behind statements in two recent books touching on human nature that take our common Western view of paternity as universal. Steven Pinker, for instance, writes in How the Mind Works, quote, Sexual jealousy is found in all cultures. In most societies, some women readily share a husband, but in no society do men readily share a wife. A woman having sex with another man is always a threat to the man's genetic interests because it might fool him into working for a competitor's genes. Unquote. Still quoting from the original passage, even more recently, Edward O. Wilson in Consilience, argues that evolutionary theory predicts that, quote, the optimum sexual instinct of men to put the matter in the now familiar formula of popular literature is to be assertive and ruddish, while that of women is to be coy and selective. And in courtship, men are predicted to stress exclusive sexual access and guarantees of paternity, while women consistently emphasize commitment of resources and material security end of that internal quote and back to the larger phrase, these views of universal human nature as well as the male-female bargain behind the standard model of human evolution are called into question by decades of ethnographic research among tribal peoples in lowland South America. Some of the older work is cited in this introductory essay, 
Recent findings, particularly those directed to the issues raised here, are reported in this volume. This work, old and new, has made two relevant findings about a substantial number of lowland South American societies. First, the people of these societies have a different doctrine of paternity, one that allows for a child to have several different biological fathers. Second, these people act on that doctrine in such a way as to confute such statements as Pinker's that, quote, in no society do men readily share a wife, unquote, and also end of the larger phrase. That comes from the paper, The Concept of Partible Paternity Among Native South Americans by Stephen Becker and Paul Valentine. But moving along to concepts of paternity, we see again that fatherhood is a flexible concept. Unlike the Nayar, where biological fathers have no rights or obligations to biological progeny, partible paternity does consider biological contribution as a metric of fatherhood and endows all men who have participated in sex with a woman near the time of conception with rights and obligations toward the child. This strategy appears to offer survival advantages over neighboring cultures where single fathers prevail. This is likely not only due to the additional support of multiple fathers, but like the Nayar, also the support of the mother's kin, where she most often resides with her primary partner. In the paper, Who Keeps Children Alive? A Review of the Effects of Kin on Child Survival, the authors reviewed the impact of the presence of kin on child survival. The paper used 45 studies, historic and current, and found not surprisingly that the presence of at least one other relative besides the mother can increase child survival odds. According to their findings, quote, Maternal grandmothers tend to improve child survival rates, as do potential sibling helpers at the nest, though the latter observation is based on rather few studies. Paternal grandmothers show somewhat more variation in their effects on child survival. Fathers have surprisingly little effect on child survival, with only a third of the studies showing any beneficial effects. End quote. However, different societies have different levels of paternal involvement, but that's for another day. For now, I just want to be sure that we're thinking about our own culture as one of many, not a human state to which all other cultures must be compared in order to be validated. Ours is not some ultimate or best. It's simply one of many. It is, as all cultures are, ever-changing and evolving, and we have opportunities to question and adjust in order to make life better for everyone. Just my usual disclaimer here that I'm not a professional anthropologist, and these tiny segments don't make anyone else an expert. They're high-level takeaways intended as food for thought to help people understand they have cultural options and alternatives, and that not all cultural structures can be tied to biological imperatives. If you're interested in partible paternity and would like to do some further reading on your own, I'm providing some resources in the description to get you started. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.